welcome to the Global Venture and Review podcast. My name is James Mawson, founder and editor-in-chief of our two publications, Global Corporate Venturing and Global University Venturing. Delighted to be back once again on the call with Jerry Hillis. Jerry, welcome. Hello, Jim. How are you? Yeah, very well, very well. It's been a spring is springing. I've spent a bit of time up in London and uh, weather's very pleasant, actually, so it always, uh, always helps indeed. But, uh, but how's, the, how's the news been looking? What's caught your eye over the past week? Well, I've always we've had quite a few stories that are uh, fairly big, starting in Colombia, where we have on-demand delivery service Rappi, which has raised a total of $1 billion from our old friend at SoftBank, two SoftBank vehicles to be precise, the $5 billion Innovation Fund, managed by company COO Marcelo Claw and its $98.6 billion Vision Fund. The deal also marks the increasing presence of South America in the VC space, which seems only likely to increase given the launch of the Latin America-focused innovation fund, even if splashing 10% of its total capital, which is yet to close on one deal, does seem a bit lavish. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely a uh, an eye-catching moment. Uh, there's been a couple of big exits in Latin America over the past few years, actually. Qualcomm have backed a couple, such as 99, which was acquired by Didi Xuxing, and there's been some big deals, SoftBank and... Tencent and NASPERS have uh, been eye in the region. We've seen a number of sort of big US VCs coming down. And, um, you know, actually, we've been fortunate over the past five years or so to, to be worked with the Brazil government on the corporate venture in Brazil, which has taken a look much more at Latin America and the sort of the change and transition, particularly over the past three or four years from fundamentally what was uh, a bit also ran as a sort of venture entrepreneurial ecosystem into probably one of the most dynamic thriving hubs has been uh, it's been really noticeable to watch actually and so the fact that SoftBank is trying to raise five billion you know, and to invest so much on Rappi is uh, really testament to uh, the opportunities I think for for the region as a whole. Obviously, Venezuela is a bit of a basket case at the moment in terms of how it's been governed and that's obviously sort of knocked on impact. Uh, Ecuador and some of the other countries nearby, but uh, but as a whole, the sort of uh, middle class is growing, and uh, the, the region shows a degree more promise. So uh, hopefully that continues. It's important for for the people. Yeah, yeah, very exciting, very exciting area. So I'm sure we'll uh, we'll be talking more about it in on this podcast. Yeah, definitely. Actually, one other thought is just on a soft bank. The fact that they've got two different funds run by two different people. Marcello obviously running the five billion innovation fund for Latin America. You know, seen as very much a sort of golden prodigal son, as were within the company, given given what he's been doing with Sprint and general performance. You know, it's been great. But uh, Chief Misra, who's been running the bigger Vision Fund, there's even been talk in the newspapers about that Vision Fund creating an IPO as a as a way almost of creating a sort of a vehicle for follow-on funding. Not quite sure how that how will work in practice, but really does indicate that there's a a lot of attention being looked at, you know, how do you create longer term evergreen capital in a in a style almost of Berkshire Hathaway. I think they'll definitely try and raise a second vision fund, but having an IPO and then being able to recycle the money as they exit things like 99 or others to back into to, to new future deals, you know, is a is a, a fascinating model and uh, certainly be a big, uh, big play. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that will, I, I hadn't heard of that, but that's that would be a very interesting play. Then we also have Beyond Meat, which has had quite a week, first upgrading the range for its IPO and then floating at the top of that range to raise approximately $241 million. 
The plant-based meat alternative developer includes General Mills's 301 investment vehicle among its shareholders, but a conspicuous absentee is Tyson Foods, which divested its 6.6% stake prior to the flotation. Likely for a healthy profit, though it may have well come out better financially if it had kept a hold of its shares. Yeah, funny enough, we had um, Rhys Schroeder's head of Tyson Ventures on a, on a sort of panel last week when I was over in Chicago for the Angel Capital Association. So then we had a sort of corporate venture piece and, uh, and he was asked directly that question, which is, you know, why, effectively, why sell the shares pre-IPO? But I think the question was also more pointedly asked, which is, is they were forced or asked to sell the shares because Tyson was effectively setting up his own alternative protein division and that was creating a conflict of interest with the portfolio company Beyond Meat ahead of the IPO. And so Reese actually answered it quite well. He kind of said, well, look, good relationships with the company. We've been setting up Tyson Ventures to do, in fact, alternative and look into this space for the company. And uh, he's got a good relationship with you know, Beyond Meat and the other portfolio companies. And I think you know, there's an interesting sort of concern, obviously, with any portfolio company about having a corporate venture that might suddenly become strategically competitive with it. But actually, I think the sort of the bigger angle, the bigger play is to say, well, Beyond Meat has been successful. It's created value. It's had the funding from Tyson. It's used some of that experience and expertise, I'm sure. And now it's had this enormously successful IPO. I think it's first day pop was something like 160%, which is the biggest since before the financial crisis. So it's obviously done really well for itself. The venture investors have hopefully helped in, in that regard. And if Tyson now moves on and does other things, then you know, I, I think everyone should be congratulated for, uh, you know, for achieving just the sort of transition and big change that probably even 10 years ago, looking at alternative proteins would have, you know, would have been slightly looked askance. So, you know, things have changed quickly. And I think everyone could, uh, could look at what's happened with Beyond Meat and Tyson and say, this is, uh, this is potentially still great. And, and the shareholders obviously love them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it didn't sound like Tyson lost out on the deal. But yeah, it's, it's quite interesting that um, you actually had uh, you had a bit of insight knowledge there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was all there. It was all on stage, on record. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, no, and uh, you know, I mean, I think the sort of uh, you know there was a sort of a dry skit maybe five years ago that the, the people who you know the sort of big change to veganism will come from uh, effectively people not realizing they've uh, they're eating non-meat when they buy their burgers at uh, at fast food restaurants, and I think. Beyond Meat has a, a deal with Burger King, and it might be. Or I think it's. Uh, I think Beyond Meat is potentially setting one up with McDonald's as the rumor, and Impossible Foods, one of its peers, has a, a deal with uh, Burger King. So you know, it might be that the sort of uh, the slight cynical view that uh, you know the that effectively meat becomes a, a luxury food again, as perhaps it was a few hundred years ago. You know, might uh, might come true. I mean, speaking as someone who's who's gone vegetarian about a year ago, I. I would be quite happy to go to Burger King or McDonald's and, and eat a plant-based burger that tastes like meat because I could quite like the taste still. I've uh, I've done it for other reasons, so <laughs> I wish them I wish them all the luck. You might be you might be at a cutting edge wave there then TME and supporting these types of portfolio companies. And actually, funny enough, um, they reckon. So I was talking to someone earlier this week, and they reckon that maybe a fifth of people in the UK now are either vegetarian or vegan or some combination. It wouldn't surprise me. I think this sort of shift in terms of particularly people your age Thierry you know and uh, and and younger that sort of millennial generational shift to um, 
being a bit more health conscious and focused on the impact of eating meat is uh, it's been really dramatic compared to prior generations. It sounds like you're doing well on it, Thierry. If you're if you're if you're being vegetarian, well, I am still alive. So. <laughs> <laughs> Something else entirely, we have Philippine conglomerate Ayala, which is looking to put together $150 million for a corporate venturing fund and is planning to source the money from its range of subsidiaries. The vehicle will be managed by Kickstart Ventures, which is the corporate venturing arm of Globe Telecom, itself a joint venture of Ayala, and it will provide between 2 and $10 million for each portfolio company. I think Minette, who's uh, been running Kickstart Ventures, done a great Great job. I think she had a first exit a few months ago as well. And uh, the whole sort of Southeast Asia ecosystem, large population growing, corporate venture in a substantial part of the venture innovation capital ecosystem. And uh, the fact that they're kind of prepared to put a bigger amount of change um, with her and her team is, uh, I think, really testament to, to how quickly um, the ecosystem is developing and uh, the opportunities there. Seems a great move, great, great track record. And uh, yeah, definitely one to watch. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I vaguely remember reading that um, it is the largest fund that would be in the Philippines. So, um, yeah, I think that, that nation is still lagging behind a bit compared to uh, much of um, Southeast Asia. So would be uh, would be fantastic news if... Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't doubt that they'll get the full amount of, for the fund, but that would be fantastic news if they did, mm, yeah, when they do. Yeah, good point, yeah. Anything on the Global University Venture Insider as, as editor there? Yes, we have FutureLearn, which is a UK-based massive open online courses provider set up by Open University back in 2012, which obtained $65 million from online education and recruitment firm Seek Group. Seek now owns 50% stake in the business, with the other half retained by Open University. FutureLearn operates a digital education platform that offers short courses, in-depth programs and full degrees from dozens of institutions around the world, such as Oxford, Tel Aviv, Monash, and Purdue. Platforms also partnered a range of other organisations, such as the British Film Institute, Amnesty International, and Macmillan Education, as well as Cambridge University Press, to give access to specialist expertise. The company said it's grown to more than 9 million users to date, and it will use the capital to develop additional courses and qualifications, including expanding its range of full degrees, which I think it's 12 at the moment, and micro-credentials. Mm. Well, Open University has just been one of the great sort of perhaps undersung success stories in education over the past whatever 50 or so years, you know, in terms of educating people and you know, particularly those you know, who wouldn't normally have found access into higher education that easy, either because they're working or, you know, they're mothers or, you know, sort of slightly other disadvantaged backgrounds or just not had the resources or time to be able to do it in the early 20s. So it's just been a a real, uh, real success story, into, and as education's open up and become broader, the fact that Future Learn is offering that sort of MOOC style approach is is great. And funny enough, over in the US, just to provide a bit of context, Coursera I think raised more than a hundred million dollars for its yeah. MOOC. So you know, the talk maybe four or five years ago that this would be transformation, you know, really affect higher education, definitely seems to be validated by the number of people using it, and also the um, there's sort of amounts of money that could be raised to help expand. I think probably the one area which I find most interesting, I'll be keen for your perspective, Thierry, is um, you know, is the sense that in some ways people go to university for a network as well. And I'm thinking places like Stanford, the entrepreneurial ecosystem that forms there, 
people can find it and they find the people and then you know either invest in them following on or find partners in in that in that way and sort of the online courses have struggled to match that but you see a number of these sorts of network start in the form where you know vc firms actually where they effectively say we can provide some education to help you learn about business or whatever it might be become an entrepreneur and then we can put you in touch with other people as as you develop and that way create that sort of validation through qualification learning plus network and i just wonder whether the attention on MOOCs actually misses that sort of network effect side model and uh how they could replicate or deal with that in a way, say, Singularity University is done or True University or Venture University and a number of others. And just a, just a interesting thoughts on that, Jeremy. I mean, I, I would definitely agree that you do also go to university for, uh, for the network. Funnily, I mean, I got this job through someone I went to university with, my predecessor, Greg Funny Brown. Enough, he had uh, worked at Open University, hadn't he, Greg? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he worked on FutureLearn with them. So, uh, yeah, there's a full, coming a bit full circle here. I'm not entirely sure how MOOCs would, could replicate that. I mean, by its very nature, they are quite international. I know Open University House campuses, they have one here in Cardiff where I'm based. So they would have facilities to hold events, but getting the people there, if you know, you, you might have students in as far away as, as, as France and Brazil, and they both on the same course. There might be possibilities in, in future with creating VR worlds, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what the solution here would be. I mean, we have a lot of social media platforms. It's, it can't be too difficult to connect the people with each other, but whether that, you know, friendship grows out of that, if you're not physically in the same room and you don't go to the pub together after you had your lecture, I'm not sure whether that is something that can be replicated. Yeah, I just wonder whether it's a strategic gap for them as a result in some ways you, you start to wonder whether the content becomes you know sort of fungible or, or changeable you know if you take a course from mit or oxford you know on quantum or whatever it might be yeah you know, you're broadly going to get an expert and whether you get it through coursera you get it through future learn yeah you know it's okay you're probably going to equally learn something great but the sort of network effects of of being able to meet like-minded people and learn something good you know, I think is is much harder to replicate. You know, those those sorts of good quality sort of gating effects. I think you know could be significant. You know, that's the value of going for Stanford. I think, frankly, the education is perfectly good, but you know, it's it's not nowhere near said quality of a, a Berkeley. Um, I, well, I'll wait for the feedback from from the two camps on that side of things. But if you look at just the Nobel Prize winners, Berkeley's far better. But if you look at the entrepreneurial sort of track record, people coming out of Stanford do much better and it's you know it's either because they're selecting people or the network effects of how they've created an ecosystem around them is more significant you could argue in which case you know you would argue that MOOCs becomes replicating just something that universities do but miss that bigger picture and someone who could crack both sides of that puzzle online and whether it's through VR as you say Thierry or something else would actually you know I think deliver something much much more tangible to the experience that people have had over the past 800 plus years or so. Oh, yeah, certainly. I, if, if there is someone out there who, who can crack that, I'm, they'll probably raise significantly more money than $65 million, as much money as that is. But then I don't know, I, I haven't done any MOOCs, but if I did, I, I would probably do a course or two just for my own kind of development and, and, and learning something about a topic that I find interesting. I wouldn't necessarily do it for the network effect. I would just kind of 
I mean, it's also fun to learn something new. Yeah. No, I think there's nothing wrong with it. I don't think, you know, I think MOOCs, obviously, as you can see by this funding and, and that Coursera and others, you know, are, are great. You know, they, they definitely fill a need. It's, you know, for example, I was signed up over the summer to do one at Singularity University. And, you know, and partly, you know, I just, I do wonder whether that sort of the network of having, you know, being part of an alumni network related to that is just that sort of extra bit of value that, you know, if you can get the education plus, why not? You know, and so I just, yeah. Anyway, I think it's an interesting one, but uh, but we could sort of noodle away on this a bit longer, Thierry. So those are those are the big stories. What about the sort of uh, more news in brief? What's been uh, what's caught your eye on that front? Well, we still have quite a few big stories here, starting with deals. There's the robotics programming software provider UiPath just carried on its funding form, securing five hundred sixty-eight million dollars in a Series D round that represents its fourth round in just two years. It's the third to feature Capital G, the alphabet unit formerly known as Google Capital, and it valued the company at $7 billion, more than 63 times the company's valuation prior to its $30 million Series A round in April 2017. Some of those investors are in for quite a windfall at some point. Get Your Guide was initially reported to have raised approximately $556 million in Series E funding from SoftBank, but the company came out a couple of days later to label the report as inaccurate. It does, however, seem that SoftBank is investing in the online tour and attraction booking platform as part of a larger Series E round, but whether it will top $500 million in size or reach the reported valuation of $1.6 billion remains to be seen. NTT.coma, meanwhile, has become the largest corporate investor in augmented reality technology developer Magic Leap, providing $280 million in connection with a strategic partnership deal. The company has now raised more than $2.6 billion in venture funding, and its earlier backers include Google, Legendary Entertainment, AT&T, Warner Brothers, Qualcomm, Alibaba, Axel Springer, and Grupo Globo. Glovo, the Spain-based last-mile delivery platform that's expanded into the Latin American market and is a rival to the aforementioned Rappi, has also just raised some big money, having received $168 million in a Series D round that included Spanish and Latin American Papa John's franchisee Drake. Glovo's earlier backers also include Rakuten Capital, which contributed to a $135 million Series C last July. Indian trucking services marketplace Blackbuck has raised more Series D funding to close out the round at $150 million, at a valuation of just under a billion dollars. Goldman Sachs co-led the round, bringing Blackbuck's overall equity financing to $230 million. Its existing backers also include e-commerce platform Flipkart, which invested at Series B stage. Business management software producer Descara has meanwhile raised about $40 million from Mirai Asset Neva Asia Growth Fund to take its Series A round past the $100 million mark. The extra capital was added to the $60 million the company had secured in a first tranche that included Susquehanna International Group and Cisco Investments, and it is reportedly now seeking $200 million in Series B funding at a $1 billion valuation. And finally, as we've already mentioned, US-based online education platform Coursera secured $103 million in a Series E round led by the same company, Seek Group. Future Fund, Australia's sovereign wealth fund, also took part in the round as did venture capital firm New Enterprise Associates. 
devalued Coursera out more than a billion dollars, a source close to the company told TechCrunch. Coursera emerged out of Stanford University in 2012 and was co-founded by two professors of computer science, Daphne Kohler, who left the university in 2014, and Andrew Ng. The Series E funding will support international growth and the further development of its product. Moving on to funds, we've got two interesting ones here as well. Toyota formed its Toyota AI Ventures unit in mid-2017 with $100 million of capital, and now, almost two years later, it's pumped the same amount into a fund too. The unit targets advanced technologies that could help fuel the future of transport, including AI, robotics and autonomous driving software, and its 19-strong portfolio includes participation in nine-figure rounds for Noto and Joby Aviation. Then we have Medical Research Commercialization Fund, or MRCF, an Australian government-backed initiative investing in technologies from more than 50 Australia and New Zealand-based research institutes and hospitals, which has raised an initial 210 million Australian dollars, or about 148 million US dollars, for its fifth fund. The initial close was backed by all of MRCF's existing investors, biotech producer CSL and pension funds Australian Super, Hester, Statewide and Host Plus, as well as the Australian government. Looking at exits, here we have Slack, which has officially filed for its direct listing, putting up an initial $100 million target. It doesn't look as if any of its corporate investors, SoftBank, Vision Fund, GV and Comcast Ventures, will be among the selling shareholders, but the filing did disclose that Vision Fund has invested upwards of $320 million for its 7.3% stake. Slack was valued at $7.1 billion as of its last funding round in August, but its shares are reportedly being bought at a valuation of nearly $17 billion in private markets. The WE company, nay, WeWork, has revealed it confidentially filed for an IPO in December last year. That would have been shortly before it raised $2 billion from its largest shareholder, SoftBank, at a $47 billion valuation, while revealing plans to expand into an all-purpose community and space-oriented service provider taking in accommodation, financial services and even chartered yachts. The fact that it filed four months ago would suggest it could be relatively far along in the IPO process, but no word on underwriters, a timetable or any other details as of yet, so maybe not. Chinese cosmetic procedure booking service, so young, went public in the US on Friday after pricing a $179 million initial public offering at the high end of the range. Tencent paid $50 million in 2016 for a stake sized at nearly 11%, but owned less than 5% of the company when the IPO rolled around. It also marks a busy week in the markets after Beyond Meat and Transmedics also floated. Kodiak Biosciences has filed to raise up to $86.3 million in its IPO, having already secured more than $168 million in venture funding from investors, including Alexandria Venture Investments. The company is developing exosome therapeutics to treat conditions such as cancer and will put the IPO proceeds into a phase 1-2 clinical trial for its first two drug candidates. Telecoms company Axiata has built up a corporate venturing portfolio worth $140 million through its Axiata digital unit, but has now decided to divest it to Pegasus 7 Ventures, a newly formed independent fund run by one of its former executives. The wording, quote, valued at $140 million, rather than stating a selling price, indicates it may be the latest example of a corporate pushing its VC activities to arm's length, rather than managing them internally or selling them off wholesale. And finally, people. 
Priya Prasad has left her position as principal at M12, the corporate venturing arm of Microsoft, for a venture investor role at VC firm Mayfield Fund. She was a founding member of M12 in September 2016 and oversaw investments in business-to-business software providers. She was involved in funding rounds for Workboard, Go One, and Scheduler most recently. Her departure follows that of Elliot Robinson, a former partner at M12 last month. Catherine Koo, the former executive director of Stanford University's Office of Technology Licensing, or OTL, has been appointed to University of Utah Research Foundation's Board of Directors. Koo's term is already effective, having been ratified on April 24th. The Research Foundation oversees University of Utah's intellectual property portfolio through its tech transfer subsidiary, the Center for Technology and Venture Commercialization, and is also tasked with operating the university's research park. Tom Risch, up until now interim executive director and vice provost for research and tech transfer at the Arkansas Biosciences Institute at Arkansas State University, has secured the job on a permanent basis. Arkansas Biosciences Institute is a research collaboration focused on medical and agricultural research backed by Arkansas State and Arkansas Children's Hospital together with University of Arkansas's Divisions of Agriculture and Medical Sciences and its campus in Fayetteville. Cambridge Innovation Capital, or CIC, the patient capital fund affiliated with University of Cambridge, has promoted life sciences-focused investment employee Sohab Mir to the position of principal. Mir became the fourth member of CIC's investment team back in 2014. And finally, Chris Downing will end 31 years at Georgia Tech when he stands down as vice president and director of the institution's Enterprise Innovation Institute, or EI2, on June 1st. EI2 handles Georgia Tech's technology commercialization program in addition to economic development and the provision of services for industry. The process of finding Downing's successor will be led by the Office of Georgia Tech's Executive Vice President for Research. However, an interim appointment is expected by May 30th. And that is it for this week's edition of the Global Venturing Review podcast. If you have any feedback, feel free to email me at thelis at globaluniversityventuring.com. That is T-H-E-L-E-S at globaluniversityventuring.com. Feel free to leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you download this podcast from. And don't forget to recommend us to your friends and colleagues. And thank you very much to those of you that have already done so. With that, I shall wish you a productive week on behalf of myself and Jim. And we will speak to you again next week. Goodbye. Global Venturing Review was produced by In-Ear Production. You can find out more by going to inearproduction.com.